Welcome to the Axiom Podcast, episode 24. Welcome to another edition of the Axiom Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Brannon. And today we're going to be talking about the three P's that you have to validate before you're assured any business process or business strategy is going to be successful. And the three P's are people, product, process. And it's funny because one of the the places that this people, product, process has been getting a lot of play is on television. There's a show, I cannot remember the channel, I'll look it up and put it in the show notes, but it's called The Profit. And the the star of the show is a guy named Marcus Leminus, and and he Leminus started Camping World. He came out of college and he was talking to a business mentor of his, and he was looking for you know what what was he going to do after college? How was he going to make his mark on the world? And this mentor said, you know, nobody has done anything to consolidate the uh, recreational vehicle, family camping, family outing, you know, great outdoors type of uh, experience, and so. Leminus began buying up little mom-and-pop RV shops all over the country and branding them under the Camping World brand and bringing standardized processes and not a franchise model but a company-owned model to these stores. And he became very successful, and now he's probably getting more success from the, the television rights and the marketing that's going on there than he is from the Camping World stuff. But he goes into businesses. Uh, there's there's small, what I call kind of mom-and-pop shops, and he brings something else to the table to to take them to the next level. And you'll hear him preach this people process product mantra all the time. And when I was talking to a client about this the other day, and they were saying, well, you know, where does the people process product thing fit in my world? And I said, well, you have to understand that it's not just people process product. There has to be some some kind of strategy is going to take a business to the next level but if you don't have people process product figured out, then that strategy is going to fail. So that's what we're going to talk about today is how people process product fits into the realm of strategic planning because it's not as simple as just tactically figuring out if you have the right people, if you have the right processes, if you have the right products. There has to be a strategy layered on top of that. It could be a growth strategy, could be an acquisition strategy, could be a expansion strategy could be a succession strategy it could there, there's you know a ton of different types of strategies that you might pursue depending on your business and what your vision is and how quickly you want to get there but the people process product thing is kind of the basic blocking and tackling that determines whether whatever strategy you bring to the table is going to be successful so i look at the the three p's as a framework for evaluating strategies and understanding whether we're even going to get out of the gate with whatever it is that we're trying to work on. So the first thing is that the first P that usually gets addressed is people. And I think it's the most important one of the bunch because when we go into a business and we start talking about uh, taking on a new client, for instance, and we do a lot of due diligence to make sure that we understand what the client does or what the prospect does at that point and what we might be able to bring to the table and add to that, whether we're going to be able to help them make a difference and whether we're going to, frankly, be able to justify the fee that we want to charge. And a lot of that determination, it's a judgment call, 
based on what what kind of confidence we have in the people who are there. And it's very I have this standard spiel that I I will take up with just about every client, every prospect. It's not just about us, every single prospect. And I say, you know, they're going to be when we meet on a regular basis to, to talk about how the business is doing and what changes need to be made and what kind of progress is happening, there are uh, there's a few a few things that we need to get out of the way on the front end. Number one is this. If there are five people around that table that are going to be involved in, in kind of the leadership team that's going to take this business and is going to work on the strategy and is going to work on the execution and we're going to be focusing, I'm going to be focusing my efforts on working with these five people, two, maybe three of them are not going to be here in one year. And that surprises a lot of business owners, but the reason, and, and I didn't go into this thinking that that was going to be the case. It's just what I've learned over experience. And the, the problem is that everything that we talk about changing in a business doesn't just happen by itself. I mean, yes, there are, there are times when you go, we're going to change out a, a computer system or we're going to change out a phone system or we're going to, put, we're going to change out our fleet of trucks and, and put different vehicles on the road. And it's true that those don't, you know, those aren't people things. But by and large, a lot of the stuff that we talk about changing in a business comes down to actual people going out and making those changes, doing things differently. And the bottom line is that people don't like to change. There are plenty of people in your organization who are just happy coming to work, knowing the the known, and scared to death of the unknown. And you bring in somebody from the outside or you decide based on something you've read or seen or a colleague that you've talked to that you want to change something in the business and there's a visceral reaction to it and they just don't want to change. And if you're lucky, the reaction is visceral, but if, but in most cases, it's not. In most cases, people will nod their head and say, yeah, that sounds great. That sounds perfect. Yes, I'm on board. And then they just fail to execute. It's kind of a failure to launch kind of thing. And they just never... They, there'll be procrastination, there'll be excuses, there'll be delays. And then when you finally back them into a corner, you'll get, uh, you'll start to get the sense that they just don't believe in what you're trying to accomplish, or they don't believe that they are capable of accomplishing it. They don't believe they're capable of being that person to take the business to the next level. So the, the people side of things has a lot to do with change. It has a lot to do with just the inherent nature of people not wanting to change. And it also has a lot to do with the dynamics of accountability in an organization. One of the things that when you're starting to, if, if you've just been humming along at the status quo, then every day, the, the only benchmark is that every day needs to look like the last day. That's, the, that's kind of the definition of the status quo. Nothing ever changes. We just keep on going. This February is similar to last February. March is going to be similar to last March. This week, similar to last week, you know, there'll be seasonality in the business, but as long as we hit the number that we did last year, we're okay. Just don't, just don't let it go down. Well, that's particularly troubling right now uh, where we're at from an economic standpoint because the recession's over. Most businesses are not only clawing back revenue, they're clawing back lost market share, uh, they're clawing back efficiency, they're clawing back gross margin points, they're clawing back pricing. So... For you to say, well, this year, as long as this year looks like last year, we're okay. It's not okay. It means that somebody else is probably taking market share with away from you or your margins are eroding because your prices aren't increasing and your costs are. So there, there's a 
a problem with just keeping the status quo. And if that's the way you've been running your business and you decide that you want to change something, all of a sudden you start to measure and you start to say, it's not okay that this February is the same as last February. Uh, our expectation is that this February is going to be 20% higher than last February. Our expectation is that our turnaround times are going to decrease. Our expectation is that our customer satisfaction ratings are going to go up on a measurable objective scale that we can benchmark and continue to chart. The expectation is that we're going to retain more customers or we're going to have more repeat buyers or that our average price or our average sale per customer is going to increase. And so you start to set these expectations and you start to measure actual results against expectations. And what you're actually measuring, yeah, we're talking about sales, but that comes down to the performance of the salesman. We're talking about retention, and that comes down to the performance of the people delivering the service. We're talking about um, margin points, and that comes down to the performance of the people who are doing the pricing and purchasing. So at the end of the day, when we start setting these expectations, what we're really doing is setting expectations for performance of individual people inside the company. And there are going to be some people who do not like that accountability, who do not like that charge to get better and better and better every day. They don't like the scrutiny. They don't like the, uh, the, uh, the accountability or the, the feedback that comes with accountability because it's not always positive. They don't like uh, the expectation that in order to get better, they're going to have to step out of their comfort zone and do things a little bit differently uh, or a little bit uh, – they're going to have to change – something about the way they do things in order to get a better result. And that's why I tell my business owners that if we start with five people, we're going to be replacing two of these within the first year. And then after that, it tends to settle down a little bit. So the the people side of the business is important from the standpoint of the change is hard for for just about everybody. Nobody likes change. The second thing is that very, very few people like accountability. And the third thing has to do with capacity. So as you, if you take a business that's been doing $2.5 million in revenue and your expectation is that you're going to grow that to five, well, the people who are capable of handling the volume at $2.5 million, capable of solving the problems that came their way at $2.5 million, capable of managing the employee base that was required of a $2.5 million company, may not be the people, they may not have the skill sets or the same capabilities that are going to be needed to run a $5 million company. So, and that and that's not a, a ding on the people. It's just a, a matter, of course, that you're going to outrun the capabilities of some people in your organization, not all of them, because there are going to be those who rise to the, to the challenge and are able to learn new things and the the really cool part is there are people in your organization, if you're running a $2.5 million company, there are people in your organization who are capable of helping you run a $5 million company. There are probably people in your organization that are capable of helping you run a $15 million company. And you owe it to them to give them the opportunity by continuing to grow your business. That's one of the, the best – if when companies talk about growth, growth can be a, a ton of different things. You know, The first thing we think about is top-line revenue growth. But you could grow market share, you could grow influence among customers, you could grow position in the industry, you could grow in terms of your ministry impact and what, what you want to accomplish. There's 
there are a million different ways, maybe not a million, there are probably two dozen different ways that we could elaborate on growth. And we'll probably work on that in the, over the course of the podcast this year. But if you've got folks in your organization who are capable of more and you're not committed to growth on any of those levels, then you're doing them a disservice. And they should go somewhere and they should work for somebody else because you're not going to use them and they're not going to reach their highest and best use working for you. So you have those folks in the organization and then you have the people who, for whatever reason, uh, I mean, it could be just ability. They just do not have the ability. It could be qualifications. They just don't have the the skill sets or the background and maybe there's not enough time to acquire those before the change is going to necessitate the need for those capabilities. But you're going to have groups, you're going to have both sides. You're going to have the folks that are going to stay with you and hopefully, you know, that's 60 to 80% of the organization. And then you're going to have the folks that they're just not going to be able to grow in the ways that you need them to, to continue to support the company. And Hopefully, that's only 20%, but it could be much higher than that, depending on the kinds of changes that you're talking about making in the company. So when I, what I encourage clients to, to remember as far as the people side goes are the, the three things that we've already talked about. Number one, some people just don't like to change. Number two, some people just don't like to be held accountable. And number three, some people just don't have the skill sets that you're going to require as your company changes. And then the last one is the one that so – so those three, clients will nod their heads and they'll think about them and they'll go, yeah, I kind of see your point. And I've never broken it down those three ways before. And then I say, well, there's a fourth way, and I guarantee you that you have thought of this one before. And I'm not saying it's the most important, but it definitely tends to be the most top of mind, and that's just personal chemistry. You have people in your organization – who are an asset in terms of the culture that you're trying to build and the attitude that you want to prevail and the impression that you want to make on customers. And then you have people who are a liability on all of those areas. And those should be the first to go. And most of, contrary to what Hollywood likes to portray, contrary to, to what the media likes to put out there, most business owners folks who run small businesses around this country or around the world even, that it doesn't matter whether they are doing $150,000 worth of business to support their family and just have one or two employees or whether they're doing $15 million worth of business and have 100 employees. They are by and large good people. They, and, and I really subscribe to this because I have seen it at play over and over and over again. Bad people typically don't make good business owners for a very simple reason. When you go out into the marketplace and your livelihood, the success of your business, your reputation as a business owner and the, all of the yardsticks that the community uses to measure, measure your success in terms of your profitability and your contribution to the community and your reputation in the community and all those things – depend on your ability to meet the needs of other people. First and foremost, your employees, because if you cannot meet the needs of your employees in terms of paying them a good wage and providing a good environment for them to work in and continuing to expand their skill sets, continuing to treat them like real human beings who have needs outside of work and outside of money, 
then you're going to have this continual turnover in your business. And there's one thing that can cripple a business faster than anything else. It's just having to train and retrain and retrain and retrain people because nobody will stay with you. So number one, business owners have to see the needs of their employees, meet those needs and meet them exceptionally well to be successful. Number two, they have to look out there outside the four walls of the business and determine what are the needs of the customers that are willing to pay me money to, to meet those needs or what are the problems that they want me to solve and how am I going to solve them in a way that adds value to that customer's life such that they're willing to trade me money for delivering that value to them. And you also have vendors. Uh, you know, if you don't, if you if you continually screw over your vendors, or treat them disrespectfully, or don't, uh, you know, if you're always trying to to nickel and dime and squeeze every last penny out of your vendors, that may work for a quarter or a year, but it's not going to work long term. You're going to find it harder and harder to find people who want to sell to you, or sell to you at a price, or sell to you in, in a type of relationship where you get the products you need and the time frame that you need them to, to meet your customers' needs. So by and large, business owners are good people. And that's been my experience through and through. I'm not saying there's not bad apples. I'm not saying there's not people who take advantage of others. But I've yet to see somebody who consistently takes advantage of other people and is, in success, is, is considered successful in business. It's far more common to see business owners who honor others, who serve others, and have found a way to, to uh, meet needs in the community, meet needs in the marketplace, and have become very successful doing that. So that brings me to that, that fourth point about people where we talk about some people don't like to change, some people don't like to be held accountable, uh, some people's abilities are not going to be up to the task, and some people just are not going to have chemistry consistent with the culture that you want to build. And why do you see that so often in organizations? I mean, that would seem like the most obvious thing in the world to fix. Like, this person is toxic to our culture. They have a poor attitude. They, they do not serve customers up to our expectation. They're a drain on the employees and team members around them. So why are they still here? Well, those good people, those business owners who care about others and see more than just the bottom line dollars, they're also incredibly reluctant to let people go. And I see this all the time. It happens every single day. I go into a business uh, that we've been working with for a fairly short amount of time, say inside of a year. There are people in that organization that are toxic to the culture of the company. And because we haven't been mindful enough of the culture, because we have not made that one of the priorities of running the business, we've allowed these people to stay and be toxic to the culture. Um, and the chemistry fit is so bad, but it's not, it, it, the badness isn't important enough to what we're doing for the business owner to do something very, very painful for them, which is to let somebody go. Because they, they start to think about, well, they have children or that they have parents that are depending on them, or uh, it's a tight economy where they're going to find another job, or there's, they're, they've been doing this for us for 20 years, and you know where the, the, the marketplace for folks of their age is, is not as, as uh, promising as somebody who's a lot younger, and they feel this obligation to keep people on, even though they're toxic to their culture. So, you know, that... 
Unfortunately, doing hard things doesn't get any easier just knowing why you have a hard time doing them. <laughs> so we, you know, we talk through those things and, and we try to get them to, to see um, that their reluctance to let the person go isn't just hurting the business. It could also be hurting the person. There's a great book by Dr. Henry Cloud called Necessary Endings. It spends a lot of time on this topic. And it, it, the whole book isn't just about uh, ending relationships with employees. It's about ending all kinds of stuff. It could be about ending business practices or ending businesses as a whole or ending bad habits. But they, he does deal pretty extensively with this ending relationships. And an employer-employee relationship is the one that I see the most often. And he talks about, um, you know, how you turn the corner and your understanding and your thinking about that. And one of the things that you need to understand, one of the things that I try to consistently do, to communicate to business owners is it, it's going to be painful for both of you right now. And there's nothing we can do that. I mean, you talk about people not liking to change. Well, coming in one morning with a job and leaving that afternoon and not having a job, that's a pretty big change. And that's not, that's never going to be easy for anybody. It's not easy for the business because all of a sudden they have to figure out how to get along without this person because as toxic as they may have been to the culture, they're still doing stuff every day that has to get done when they're gone. And it's tough for the employee because now they don't have a job and financially it could be a, a very scary situation where they don't know where the next paycheck is going to come from and they have financial obligations and families to take care of and the personal rejection of, of being told you are not measuring up here and it's not just that you're not measuring up, you're not measuring up to such an extent that we're just going to terminate the relationship with you. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't work to try to improve behavior, you shouldn't try to work to improve performance. What I'm talking about is that that toxicity to the culture. And that's one of the things that I think business owners have to get to a point where they have a very low tolerance for that. And again, I'm not saying they don't care for the person. I'm not saying they don't counsel the person. But if they've done those things and there hasn't been a result, they really have to face the fact that there's probably never going to be a result until they do the hard thing. And not only there's a, there's a tendency to think about that hard thing as something that's very selfish for the business owner because they're only thinking about their business, but that could not be farther from the truth because we've seen it. I've seen it personally, and my business owner clients have seen it because they do care about these people and they do keep in touch with them, where that event, where they, got, they fired that employee, in that employee's mind, yes, that was a very traumatic event, but in a lot of cases that event was the catalyst for them to make some personal changes that up to that point they had been unwilling to make. That was the reality check. That was the come to Jesus meeting. That was the point at their, in their life where they realized, you know what, my attitude does stink. I am bitter. I am carrying around this stuff from, you know, maybe a divorce that happened five years ago, uh, maybe infidelity and my spouse cheated on me. And I've been bitter at the entire world for the last five years. And I've carried that into the office. Or maybe it's uh, you know, life isn't fair. I shouldn't be struggling financially the way I'm struggling, and I can never get a leg up. And I've been carrying that into the office every single day. Or I've been carrying that into my customers' homes every single day. And I get it now. They they fired me. It was so bad, they fired me. Oh, my gosh. And so they turn a corner, and it's not uncommon for you to find out that a year later, two years later, that person is in a position where they're making more money, they're more successful, they're happier, they're more fulfilled, they're having a greater impact on their community than they ever had at your place of business. And 
it all started with a very tough decision that you had to make, which was to let that person go. So that no, you know, knowing that or believing that isn't going to make it any easier, and it doesn't happen for everybody. I mean, there there are people who get fired and they still haven't hit rock bottom, and they continue to have self destructive behaviors. And you talk to them two years later, and they're worse off than they were when they worked for you. But you can't take that too personally. I'm, I'm not saying you can't take it personally because God created us with emotions, and if you didn't feel anything for that person, there might be something wrong with you. Um, but you have to understand that at the same time that you can sympathize and empathize with them, you're not completely responsible for the choices that they're making. So that's my soapbox, I guess. I'll get off that. But that's people. So I tend to look, when we start evaluating people, we'll look at, um, you know, what, what, what's the kind of personal makeup. And, and my friend Doug Paul does leading dimensions profiles, and, and those are very good tools. Um, they're, they're the kind of tools that you expect in like a disc profile or Myers-Briggs. They're, I like Doug's tools because they're, I think, a little bit more insightful and they give you a little bit more, a little bit better understanding of what's going on in terms of the makeup of the person. And that can, that, those things can help you determine whether, you know, we're dealing with somebody who just has a hard time with change. Um, and so, wow, you know, we need to, we need to really do a good job of, of helping them understand why we're doing the things that we're doing and providing the tools that, that are going to make it easier for them to make those transitions. And then also just making sure that there's a transition period or, Hey, we've got somebody here who is completely comfortable with change. And so, gosh, we weren't thinking that they were going to play a huge role in this strategic shift that we're imagining for the company, but maybe we should, in, maybe we should increase the role because they could be a real big champion. They're not going to be scared off by a lot of the stuff that's being thrown on the table in the leadership room. And, they, and, it, and by the way, they're great communicators. So maybe we bring these folks in and they can help communicate to the rest of the group why they shouldn't be scared of this stuff. Uh, or, you know, I mean, th- this goes a lot of different ways. You might find somebody who's terrified of change and is a great communicator, and you decide to bring them into the group so that th- that you are cognizant of what some of the other employees who are terrified of change are going to be experiencing. And they can kind of be the proxy, the voice that pushes back and says, you know, if you guys make this change this quickly, you're going to scare the crap out of a lot of people, and and they're not going to. You're not going to get the buy-in that you need to make this successful. I would recommend that we phase it in this way or that way. So, I think you you can do some homework, and you can use some technologies and some some tools that are out there. And I'll put a link to to some of Doug's stuff in the show notes. Um, you can use those to evaluate whether those those people in your organization are the kind that are, are going to have a hard time with change or whether they're going to be completely comfortable with change, whether they are, when you're talking about uh, the second point where some people like to be held accountable and some people don't, you can find out who are the real drivers in your organization. Who are the people who like to keep score? Who are the people who love scoreboards and love being able to come in and measure themselves against a benchmark, measure the performance of the company against a baseline expectation? And, and you can find out all kinds of things about who you're dealing with, but when but that most important one, that toxicity to the culture, that's something that you typically don't need any kind of test to tell you. It's the kind of thing that if you sit down and you talk to your leadership team, there's usually no surprises there. If I, if I say, who's toxic to your culture right now? I'm not saying we're going to fire them. I'm not saying that, that, that we're not going to reevaluate 
their cultural fit at a later time. But right now, who's the who are the what are the names that pop out? And man, they come you know one right after the other after the other. There's no hesitation. Then there's no equivocation. It's like yes, that person and that person and definitely that person. So you have to be in a position where you're willing to hear those kinds of things as the business owner. You're willing to understand how important they are to the strategy that you're getting ready to launch, and you have to be willing to fix them. So that's all people. On the process side, one of the things that clients will hear me talk a, a lot about is efficiency versus effectiveness. So one of the things that and this is not not my concept like almost everything that I that I use in my day-to-day practice of working with business owners I have stolen from somebody else and I remember going to Deeper Weekend which is a thrival event it's a very interesting dynamic uh two three four day conference experience with a bunch of uh pioneering people in the CPA profession I remember going to the the very first Deeper Weekend it was about three or four years ago and Ron Baker and Ed Kless uh, were leading a two-day workshop, and I don't remember whether it was Ron or whether it was Ed, and at some point it was probably both of them because they were tag-teaming all day long in the, during these two days. And they, they talked about this distinction between efficiency and effectiveness. And there is a tendency, so efficiency is getting things done fast. Effectiveness is doing the right things. And one of the things that I try to make clear to my clients is I am more than willing to give up efficiency to gain effectiveness. But the tendency is to think of processes only in terms of efficiency. So when we're getting ready to launch a brand new strategy, we're getting ready to, to embark on this two or three year journey that's going to take the business to the next level. When we stand back and we look at our business processes and that and in any business, there could be a hundred different processes. Some are very, very important. Like some, the sales process tends to be something that needs to, you know, it's, it's a big process. It's a central process. But, the, you know, the accounting department is also going to have a process for how they, how they handle payables and, and how they follow up on receivables. But there are some processes that the entire organization needs to take an interest in and be somewhat familiar with. And, there's, and for like a sales process, I would say, the entire organization needs to kind of know what the sales process looks like. I'm not saying that they need to be able to jump in to any point in the process and hold their own, but they do need to have a general understanding of what it is. The service delivery process is another thing that everybody in the company should kind of understand. Here's how we deliver service, or here are the here are the products that we sell, and here's how we get those products, and here's who we try to sell them to, and here's how we price those products. And it may not be the exact pricing formula, but that people should at least know whether their process results in uh, a, a low a low price in the market versus a premium price in the market. So there are different processes, and we tend to grab the the more central ones, like the sales process or the service delivery process. Um, and we tend to dra- grab those first and, and start to work on those. And when we do, we want to understand: are the changes that we're talking about? Uh, making in this process just for efficiency or are they also going to add to effectiveness? Because we can change lots of processes to add efficiency in terms we could cut things out, we could we could um, distribute responsibilities and, and break things apart into smaller pieces and push them out to different places in the company to reduce turnaround time. 
we could uh, we could invest in technology that's going to automate some of those processes or make them easier to track. It's going to maybe reduce manual data entry. There's all kinds of things that we can do, and and it's not hard to find vendors out there who want to sell you things that are going to make your processes more efficient. So uh, that's not bad, but if you never step back to say, but is this process effective, then you could be really spinning your wheels. And that's one of the things that I like about uh, this TV show that we started the, the podcast talking about, The Profit with Marcus Leminis. And he'll go into a business and he looks at the business as a customer, as an employee, as a vendor. He doesn't necessarily look at the business as uh, a vendor who's coming in to try to bring more efficient processes. And he's looking for the processes that need to change that are going to make the business more effective and his view more profitable. That's kind of the thing that drives everything that he does is profit. And and I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm saying that in the clients that we work with, it's not all profit motive. I mean, there, when we work with a client, uh, sometimes we could be working with a client who's only interested in succession. You know, they have a 45 year old son who needs to be in a position to take the business over in the next five or six years. And a lot of the strategies that we're working on and the way we're going to measure growth is going to be measured against his capacity to take over that business in the time frame that we've set aside. So are the processes that we're talking about going to be more effective at driving that strategy? Not just more efficient at shuttling more customers through, but more effective at making it possible for this person to take over the business in five years. And when you talk about uh, service environments especially, I think one of the things that you need to pay attention to is and this is something that's been coming up in our practice more and more and more lately. That's that's why I wanted to talk about it in this podcast. Is time and task management. When you're talking about products, and we're talking about maybe a manufacturing environment or a retail environment, then this time and task management stuff doesn't come into play as much as it does in service environments. And what I mean by service environments, so I mean you could be talking about a medical practice. You could be talking about a law practice. You could be talking about home services like landscapers or roofers or pest control folks or dry cleaners or, I don't know, you name it. You could be talking about uh, industrial services, public works departments. You could be talking about all kinds of things that really depend on a person going out and doing something, and then you're going to get paid a price for whatever that person did for somebody else. So your employees, your service employees go out there into the world and they do things for other people and you get paid and then you pay them. And that's how service businesses work. And in service businesses, this idea of time and task management becomes a huge driver for the effectiveness of processes because we could build very, very efficient machines. But if people aren't managing their time and they're not managing the tasks that are given to them, then it doesn't matter how efficient the lawnmower is. It only matters whether they called the customer back to get the job so that they could go cut the lawn. So it becomes important then that you look at how are these people managing their time? How are they managing their tasks? And we're not going to get in there today. I'll put some links in the show notes to prior episodes we've done on time and task management. But understand if you walk into or not walk into, you, you, you walk in there every day. If your business... I'm still thinking like Marcus Leminis and he walks into these businesses, but you walk into your business every single day. And if you're, if the business that you're walking into is a service business, 
and you have not given considerable thought to how your people are managing their time and managing their tasks, that's where you need to start because that is what drives the effectiveness of your processes. It's not enough just to go look at your sales material and how you schedule appointments and how you present to to prospects and work really, really hard on your sales process if you've got salespeople who can't keep appointments or you've got salespeople who walk out of appointments and haven't written down what they're supposed to do to follow up and, and never get the customer back the information they need to close the deal. So in, in non-service businesses, then the time and the task management piece isn't as, as important as it, as it is in those until you get to managerial level stuff. And then your managers have to be really good time and task managers. Everybody else just has to come in and run the machine for the number of hours that needs to get run or stock the shelves for the number of hours that they're supposed to work or sell at the front desk, you know, whatever, whatever, answer customer inquiries, whatever it might be in that product-based business. But the, the thing about product-based business is you get into more, uh, not more, but you, you jump, you kind of skip the time and task management piece and we jump into workflow processing. So how does work move through the, the organization? How does a sales order move through the organization and get filled? How does, how do, how do uh, materials get received in the organization and stocked and how often does that happen? And what's our inventory turnaround and all of those questions. And you can get into workflow process management or workflow process mapping where you can identify all the discrete actions that happen in the company and how long those actions take and what's the time lag between two different actions. And you can start to work on those. But again, you have to look at that from a standpoint of, of not just driving efficiency, but driving effectiveness. Like if you're really pushing for, for efficiency gains, my pushback on that would be why number one, how much are we going to have to spend to gain that, that efficiency? So Let's say that you want to, uh, to to reduce the turnaround time from the time a job order is received to the time it's shipped out the door. My question would be, well, why do you want to do that? Now, I know why a retailer like Amazon wants to do that because they're competing with folks who could walk out their door, go buy a product, and have it in hand today. So them marketing their Amazon Prime membership where – you can pay $4 and get it the next day, or you can pay nothing uh, other than your annual subscription fee and have everything come to your house in two days. That becomes very important for them because that's what the, So you go, okay, well, turn, decreasing turnaround time from order placed to order delivered makes a lot of sense for Amazon because it'll make them more effective at selling their products. But if you're in a business where uh, people place standing orders for products and they typically have a two-week lead time between the time they, they place the order and the time they need the order, why in the world would you spend any money uh, trying to reduce the turnaround time from, say, let's say it takes you five days to get that product to them, but that product's going to now sit in their warehouse or on their shelf for nine days. So why would you do that? I mean, why would you spend money so that it can sit on their shelf for nine days instead of sitting on their shelf for two days or three days. And in some cases, spending that money to become more efficient may actually make you less effective because you may find out that they don't want it sitting on their shelf for five days. The whole reason they give you that lead time is because they only want it there for two days. And when you make that change on your end, it's going to require all of your customers to change their ordering cycle now to, to match 
what you want to deliver at. Oh, and by the way, it's going to cost you a lot of money to reduce it from 14 days to five days or whatever it is that you're, you want to reduce the turnaround time to. So time and task management becomes important on the service side and workflow process mapping and redesign and ev- evaluation becomes very important in both. I mean, the workflow process stuff applies equally well and, and, and you could even make the, the argument more so in the uh, service industry than it does in the products industries because when you like when you decide that you're going to redesign uh, a workflow process in a products industry, you're typically talking about pretty big investments in uh, machine downtime or or uh, reduction in capacity for a while while you get those prod when you get those processes revamped. When you're talking about service industries, all you're talking about is the time that it takes to train people in the new process, and that the training time is typically not it's not inordinately large. Like you're not reinventing the, reinventing the wheel. You're just changing a few things in the whole scheme of the process that they've been doing. You're not completely changing the process and going into a different business. You're just saying, Hey, this one part of the process we're going to eliminate, or we're going to add this step, or we're going to change the script in this way. or We're going to change the follow-up responsibilities to this person. And as soon as you make those changes and get everybody trained in them, that that starts to pay benefits. It starts to pay dividends in terms of a return on, on investment or an increase in productivity or whatever it is almost immediately. So I don't mean to say that workflow process mapping isn't important in service industries. It's incredibly important. But if you don't first take the time to address whether you have a good time and task management culture in your organization, then you're probably going to be a little bit frustrated that the workflow process mapping that you did isn't leading to the immediate results because things are still falling through the cracks. And and the last thing I'll say about the time and task management stuff is it. what, what I tell clients is this is really about trust and communication. When you're talking about time and task management inside an organization, that's all you're talking about is trust and communication. Because when I have something, when, I, when I'm the person who has something that I need done, and, I, and I'm going to delegate that to somebody. Uh, and this could even go for your customers. Your customers are going to ask you to do something. And what they need to be able to do is trust that when they give you something to do, you're actually going to do it. That's the trust piece. The communication part comes in where if I'm giving you something to do, I have to communicate that in a way so that you know exactly what you're supposed to do and when you're supposed to do it. So there, there's, there's very definitely a two-way give-take here of... I need you to accept this and put it into a system where I know it's going to get done so I can trust you to do it. And you need me to adequately communicate what's supposed to happen and when it's due and what the expectations are so that you don't, I haven't set you up for failure. And that's really all it's about. And, and I'm, I am systems agnostic. I don't care what kind of time and task management system you use as long as it fosters those two pieces, better communication inside the organization about expectations and what needs to get done and higher levels of trust because fewer things fall through the cracks. So that's my, that's my position on time and task management and how it fits into processes. The last thing is the product. And the, this, this for most companies almost seems, I don't want to say 
no brainer, but you do run into cases where companies have done one thing. Actually, let me rephrase that. Companies haven't done one thing. And I think a lot of companies are good at this, especially if they've been around for a while. The thing that they're good at is they never ask whether their, their product is still relevant in the market. They just assume that it is. And it could be there, – there's, there's definitely a tendency in companies once they get to a certain size. And I personally think that size is about 20 employees, about $2 million. Because at that level, you've, you have a group of people inside the company that are typically – managers. And it's not a very big, at $2 million, it's not a very big group. It might be two, three people. But those people, they they come to work every day and they manage. And that can be dangerous because when they come in and the only thing they do is stay inside the four walls of the company every day, they start to lose touch with what's happening outside their four walls in terms of customers, usually not in terms of vendors because the vendors are still coming to them. The vendors are are coming to you to sell you stuff and they're giving you uh, industry tidbits. And that, that can also be dangerous because when I talk to clients and, and they're telling most of the Intel about what's happening in their industry is coming from their vendors. It makes me very, very nervous, right? Because what what is a vendor? Well, to the to the vendor, you are the customer, All right? So, let me ask you: Are you completely transparent and and completely honest and open with your customers who are buying from you about uh, you know their ugly babies or the warts on their their chin or the deficiencies in their product or their no? You, you typically aren't. You, you don't walk into a customer's business and go, you know, you guys are really screwing this up and you should change that. No, you usually go in and you might note those things, but what you want to do is sell them what it is that you have to sell. And I'm not saying that you do that to their detriment, but let's say that you go into a business and, and you go into their, their, their front office where customers come all the time and you're waiting on your appointment. And you, uh, you go into their restroom, and the restroom is absolutely disgusting. Do you walk out of there and tell the business owner that the restroom is disgusting? Or do you walk out of there and tell the purchaser uh, you know, how quickly you can have the product over to them that they want to buy? So you know, that's now understand your vendor is coming into your business, and they're not telling you about your disgusting bathroom. You know, the, the other thing they're not telling you, typically, they're not telling you that your competition has a much better product or service than you do because they don't want to deliver bad news. They don't want to be the downer. They don't want to give you a reason to dislike them, and they don't know whether you're the kind of person who's going to shoot the messenger or, or listen to the counsel and put it to good use. So that's why I get nervous when I go into businesses and when I, I hear that all of their intel that they're relaying to me about what's happening in their industry and what their competitors are up to, I'm like, well, where did you hear that? Oh, well, our supplier so-and-so is telling me that stuff. I'm not saying that suppliers can't be very valuable sources of information, but I would prefer if the supplier's information wasn't about what's happening in the customer marketplace because they don't know. I mean, you're, you're telling me that your vendor is going to be telling you what your customers want? Uh, 
I don't think so. I think it's more likely that your vendor is going to be trying to convince you that your customers want to buy what your vendor is trying to sell. That's typically the way it works. So when you, when you talk about the product side, so we started with people, we're moving on to, we, we talked about process, now we're on product. The, the only thing that I really want to drive home in this area is, is your product relevant in the market? And, and relevance means that customers want it. It means that other people uh, haven't identified something that customers want much more, and you're just completely blind to it. So are you out there talking to your customers? Are you out there asking them about you know, what needs they have that aren't being met, which is an incredible exercise for businesses to go through. And it can open up all kinds of new markets. There's a book that was written maybe 15 years ago, maybe 20, I don't know, um, called Blue Ocean Strategy. And Blue, Blue Ocean Strategy is about red oceans and blue oceans. I'm not going to go into it. I'll put a link in the show notes, and you could probably Google it and get a, an excerpt, uh, a Wikipedia entry or something that will break down the, the ash of the book. But people spent an incredible amount of time doing, like, off-site retreats and bringing in experts and trying to figure out where the blue oceans are. You know where the blue oceans are? The blue oceans are out there with your customers. And I'm not saying that your customers are going to know exactly what they want. What I'm saying is if you go out there and you talk to your customers about what their needs are, they don't know what they want. They just know where their needs are, where their frustrations are. It's up to you to provide the solution that they don't know that they want yet, but that will meet these needs, will meet, will answer these questions or provide this value that they don't know they're looking for. But they have a need. And if you can get out there and talk to your customers about what their needs are, you'll find out that you have no end of new products to develop. You have no end of new services that you can test market and ply the waters with and see if this is something that will get uptake and start to gain traction in your business and become maybe a whole new revenue share. So, you know, a friend of mine, Dean Burnside, who's also a great client, I love working with Dean, and he he saw this blue ocean thing when he started to recognize in their particular market in Southwest Florida, Sarasota, Venice area, a lot of people were becoming super conscious about green products to the extent Sarasota County even began to change the laws about what kind of fertilizers could be used on yards because they were concerned about nitrates and runoff and all this stuff. And he decided that he was going to make a switch to use all green pest control products. And, he did that because he saw what was happening. He saw what his customers were talking about. He saw the kinds of things that they were interested in. And they didn't know that they wanted green pest control products. They knew that they wanted to go to Whole Foods because they had better foods. They knew that they wanted uh, more renewable cars on the road. They knew that they wanted more green spaces in their communities. And Dean looked at what he was doing in the world of pest control and said, you know what, if they want these things in other areas, I bet they want them in their pest control products as well. And so that opened up a whole new road for him. Now, he didn't figure that out sitting in his office every day just managing people. He had to figure that out by getting outside of the office and talking to some some friends of his who were also business owners and talking to customers and being aware of what was going on in the world. And he asked himself what if his product was still relevant. And it wasn't that it was irrelevant, but it wasn't as relevant as it could be. 
So most companies don't do that. And there are definitely times where, you know, they, they recognize that the product is the problem. And it, and it could be through like customer service complaints. Um, it, it could be that the sales are down. Could be that they find out, you know, they're making buggy whips when the whole world is transitioned to automobiles. There's lots of ways that you can, um, that, that where the alarm bells start to go off. But those aren't the situations that I get pulled into. I don't typically get pulled into turnaround situations. What I get pulled into is companies that are growing and want to increase growth or companies that are stagnant and want to grow again or companies that are growing at an incredible rate and want to maintain that growth rate. And that's the danger zone for becoming irrelevant because you could just be in a, in a place where like a lot of people – who were selling the same thing that you sold have decided to get out and you're experiencing the fact that a lot of customers haven't made the switch yet and so they still need a place to purchase it but in five years nobody's going to be buying this stuff you're just experiencing this little temporary bump before the entire market dries up or you could just be humming along um, gaining more and more scale you're being known as the bigger and bigger player in the market and more and more people are coming to you or maybe you've just built an incredible marketing machine. You finally figured out your marketing plan after 10 years and you've ramped it up and you're driving more and more revenue into the business. But there is something happening in your marketplace among your customers that's going to make your product obsolete in five or six or seven years. And you're just humming along, ordering more and more and stockpiling it in the warehouse because you know you're going to sell out with all these orders coming in. And in three or four years, you're going to be flat-footed when those orders tank. So there are probably some really good examples of that that I didn't take the time to think of. But I think everybody understands this need to be vigilant in terms of questioning your product's relevance in the marketplace. So just to, to go back to what we started with, you know, this, this product process and our people product and process paradigm of looking at those three areas of the business that's important but that kind of stuff it is in support of a bigger strategy and if you're not you can't just go in and say hey we're going to fix our people hey we're going to fix our process hey we're going to fix our product and then expect that kind of the if we build it they'll come mentality one of the things that I'm really passionate about is this idea of bringing strategic planning to small businesses, businesses that are $2 million, $4 million, $5 million, $10 million. Not, they don't have to be $200 million to do business strategy. So you have to do the, the hard work of strategic planning. You have to go out there and find that next thing that's going to take the business to the, to the next level or change, substantively change what you're trying to do in order to, to make your your vision happen. If you're going to hand the business over to your 45-year-old son in five years, then you have to have a strategy for doing that. When you have that strategy, once the strategy is in hand, you really need to ask yourself, do I have the right people to execute the strategy? Do I have the right processes to execute the strategy? And do I have the right product to execute the strategy? Because if you do, then you can just execute on the strategy and you'll find success. But you can execute against the strategy all day long, and if you're deficient in one of those three areas, you're going to get very frustrated, and you're going to have continual issues until you decide, hey, we're going to do the basic blocking and tackling that's going to help us be successful in this strategy. 
So that's those are my thoughts. People process product. I hope you've enjoyed them. Uh, we'll be back next week with another edition of the Axiom Podcast. This was episode 24, and you can find show notes at axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 024. Until next week, I wish you success and a lot of happiness, and uh, enjoy the weather here in, in southwest Florida. It's probably the most beautiful time of year we have all year long. That's why all the snowbirds are here. It's about 74 degrees today, and I'm going to get out there and enjoy it. hope you do too.